Hello and welcome back to The Tune-Up, the new podcast brought to you by the Melbourne Recital Centre, where we find out exactly what makes Melbourne's best musicians tick. I'm Maxim Boone. I'm Megan Stella. And today we're joined by the incomparable Mama Alto, the gender transcendent diva and LGBTQI activist. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a great thrill to be back at Melbourne Recital Centre. And it's a great thrill to have you here. Um, (laughs) The first question really is about the kind of the many different identities you have as a performer, as an artist. Your career as a cabaret performer has gone very much hand in hand with your community activism and your representative as a kind of community leader. Just tell me a little bit about why having those two kind of hemispheres of your career has been so important. Well, I never set out or intended to be an activist Mm. or a leader or someone who tries to work for the community. But because I'm a queer person, a trans person, a person of colour, It just happens that as soon as you get any kind of platform or any kind of attention or any kind of respect or dignity or power given to you by society, then you naturally want to use that for the benefit of your community and for the people around you and for the people like you who might not have seen themselves represented, who might not be given a voice in society or politics, but as marginalised people, we are often given voices in culture. And uh, to me, particularly with some of the great icons who I idolised from the worlds of culture and music and theatre, um, if we look at women like Lena Horne or we look at women like Billie Holiday or Cleo Lane or Nina Simone, so many of them coming from a background that's been minoritised, And I don't like to say minorities because we're not in the minority and we're not less than in Mm -hmm. number or in value, but we've been minoritized and oppressed. Culture, particularly arts and music and sport, are the places where our value and our excellence is recognized and where it can't be taken away from us. Uh, And that is the arena where we gain influence, where we get a platform, where we get attention and importantly respect and given our full value because our artistic excellence or our sporting excellence is undeniable. So once you reach that platform, it becomes a kind of responsibility or a kind of very deep-seated, a deep-seated calling to try and do what's best for the people around you to give voice to those struggles and oppressions and prejudices. And suddenly you find that people are saying that you're an activist or a leader when all you wanted to do was use the microphone that's been given to you because of your talents to help those around you. I think that song and music is such an almost limitless site of human expression. That's why it's remained popular for the whole history of humanity. (laughs) That's why buildings and places like this exist. And um, inside song, people can connect to each other with incredible empathy and incredible connection and incredible understanding that just directly, like some sort of electricity, it just directly taps into our shared human spirit. Other things like language, like rhetoric, like politics, these might form barriers to us connecting to each other. But in music, we are all just like drops of water in a great big river and so easily able to connect directly human heart to human heart and communicate. It sounds very 
obscure and strange and esoteric, but it's almost like communicating on a spiritual or metaphysical level. And from that place we can... I went actually, I went recently to the Melbourne's... um, Melbourne hosted the International Jazz Day concert and Herbie Hancock and Liz Wright in their speeches that night said similar things about that power of music to transcend boundaries, to transcend rhetoric and language and politics and really remind us and link us to our shared common humanity. And for me, once someone comes and sees me singing, if it's the kind of genre and the kind of music they like, then suddenly instead of, and it might be their first time having a direct experience with a trans person or with a queer person or with a brown person, and similarly I look to history and see the way that women like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and Nina Simone seeing their music might have been a white 1950s mainstream American's first positive encounter with blackness. Or if we look at pop in the 80s and we look at people like Sylvester and Grace Jones, suddenly this is the mainstream, it might be someone who's only been part of mainstream culture, their first positive, exciting exposure to queerness and queer culture. And the flow on benefit of that is that instead of being afraid of each other or suspicious of each other or not recognizing the humanity in each other through music through the arts we open up and it sounds naive or cliche but I believe eventually starts to create a better world Absolutely. And we've spoken about the boundaryless aspects of singing. And so I'd like to ask you about the the radical potential of storytelling, which is such a beautiful phrase uh, taken from your bio. Talk me through radical potential. What do you see the radical potential as being through your storytelling, whether it be through writing or through speaking or through performing? For me, storytelling is intrinsically linked to singing because as a singer, Um, there's the melody and there's the expressive potential of the music that we've just talked about, but there's also the lyrics. And the lyrics, at their best, form a kind of storytelling. And it's a kind of storytelling that isn't necessarily bound by narrative convention or chronology. It hints at something much more fluid or much more malleable. And it's a kind of storytelling that when the singer is giving voice to those lyrics... Uh, in that, you know, four to 15 minute song, however long it is, in whatever genre it is, the listener can choose and they can be hearing someone tell a story about that person's life, the singer's or the protagonist's life, or the listener can be the protagonist inside Mm. those lyrics, Mm. or they can be both at once. So it's a very powerful uh, and interesting form of storytelling because it has that embedded potential for empathy and connection. Mm -hmm. And then storytelling to me more generally has a radical potential because stories are how we as human beings come to know each other and ourselves. It's how we build identity. It's how we build communities. It's how we build whole nations sometimes. Mm -hmm. And history is authorised stories that someone in power has authorised and collected and said, yes, that's the history. But storytelling, what um, there was a sociologist and historian who's quoted a lot in critical theory 
uh, leotard. And it's easy to remember the name because it's similar to a fabulous spangly dancewear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he called it the petit récit, the little stories. Mm. Stories can form this kind of countercurrent to official histories or official ideas, which can often be oppressive ideas mm. if used wrongly because they capture actually the full spectrum of humanity, the full diversity of lived human experiences. And so that's, and that is a radical thing, even today in the 21st century, sadly, recognising that all human beings have different experiences of life and the world and identity, and that that difference is something beautiful and to be encouraged. Mm. And in storytelling, that becomes safe that becomes attractive, that becomes understandable, that becomes relatable. Through storytelling, we start to again break down those boundaries and storytelling is just the quintessential human instinct to tell and receive stories. And then that opens the floodgates so that we can know each other and ourselves at such a deep level and when you know someone and know other people at such a deep level, how can you hurt or commit atrocities against them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I fear, and that's why, that's why some of the most dreadful dictatorships and political powers we've known over the last several thousand years, the first thing that they do is shut down culture, shut mm-hmm. down music, shut mm-hmm. down storytelling and expression, and enforce one single authoritative and authoritarian history instead of embracing the river of stories, the pluralities, the complexities, the contradictions, because that's how they control and shut down humanity by controlling the stories. Mm. Now, on, on empathy and on sharing these stories, you've also mentioned that, uh, that one of the things that you strive for in your performance is a st- showing a strength in softness and I wanted to relate that to your upcoming recital centre performances there'll be two 6pm and 8pm on Friday the 19th of July Uh, how does strength in softness come across in Torch Songs? I think strength in softness and I also often like to talk about power and vulnerability Mm. and I think those are two very important things because A society and a culture that sees softness and vulnerability as weakness, I think, is very misguided. And at the same time, cultures and societies that think that power and strength are always uh, represented by or embodied by brute force or violent acts are toxic cultures. And that is how we end up with so many of the worst problems, the worst atrocities with humankind. In, um, in music, we can start to see very strongly how softness and vulnerability can equal strength and power. And that is power in the, in the very visceral sense, in something that to sing and sustain a very soft, a very piano pianissimo note for several metres, for several bars, takes immense core strength, takes immense the intracostal muscles in the rib cage to sustain quiet notes for a long time. And that is a kind of power. Mm. And so it's a very visceral, literal sense that that softness, that quietness, that gentleness in the voice is actually held together by immense power. Mm. Um, the same or more power 
in the bodily mechanisms of singing as to belt out a really loud note. So that's the first thing. It's in a very literal sense. Mm -hmm. But then in a more figurative sense, it is the, the power and strength of softness and vulnerability invites empathy and creates connection and creates lasting change sometimes lasting change that you as a performer or a storyteller or a speaker or in whatever it is that you do with your skills in the world to affect change that you will never see the impact of. Sometimes quietly inviting someone to see what it is like to live in the world in your shoes can change someone's life or someone's life down the track in intangible, unmeasurable and unimaginable ways, sometimes decades later and sometimes immediately. Mm. And um, my favourite example of this, I was once performing in Perth as part of the Fringe Festival in Perth and I was doing my set of, of jazz songs, of very emotional ballads and there was this man in the audience who'd been dragged along by his wife because it was not his thing because he was a blokey bloke and he likes loud cars and loud rock music and um, and I know all of this because he came and spoke to me after the show mm. and he definitely did not like brown people or queer people or women in general, really. Mm. And he came up to me after the show and he was very teary and he let me know that he had always been a very conservative, very straight. He emphasised how straight he was many times and uh, didn't and thought that people who were different should just be quiet and try and blend in. And then, and he had been and seen many debates and rallies and seen Q&A on the television and all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> and he said, but then sitting here, just quietly listening to your songs and hearing you sing and hearing the stories in the songs, I wanted to say thank you because for the first time in my life, you've made me understand what it would be like to be you and to be different and how hard that must be. And I'm 66 years old and 66 years I never understood what that was like and now I feel like I'm beginning to understand. And so in that sense, the strength, that softness and vulnerability and quiet, gentle dignity holds, I definitely think, especially in protest, especially in political struggle, there's a place for anger and there's a place for rage and there's a, there's a place for shutting down the streets with banners and placards. But we can't underestimate the place of that kind of gentle, quiet human sharing, direct one human heart to another that can have a huge impact. And that's an extraordinary and beautiful story about how that change can bloom in a very short term. Um, during the course of one performance. And Torch Songs is a very kind of pure expression of that. It's, it's songs, it's um, cabaret in a, in a very kind of pure form. You've also recently been involved with several quite cutting-edge um, projects. There was the wonderful um, kind of curated song journey around the NGV during the, the MoMA exhibition. And then most recently, is an extraordinary accomplishment, your collaboration with Maud Davey in a, a collection of fantastic cabaret artists for Gender Euphoria. Um, I'm curious to know, just sort of in relation to that last story, about how you've seen the the culture of cabaret and the culture of our cities and how they absorb these shows change um, over the years. Because you have been really on the kind of the the frontier 
of, of how this story and how these narratives have entered more people's lives? What an amazing question. Uh, oh, it might take me a while to unpack this one because with the other <laughs> questions, they're the kind of questions I ask myself and that I think a lot about. But this question I've never really considered. I think it's to do with layers. I think the art form of cabaret performance, which is an incredibly, it's an incredibly broad church, you know, cabaret, what I'm doing here at the Recital Centre with my show Torch Songs, it's a set of, of 12 beautiful songs from the Great American Songbook, from the Tin Pan Alley, Broadway traditions, from the jazz standard traditions, and they're songs which put emotions uh, first and foremost and which take emotional intensity and explore a depth of emotions to the extreme. And that's the attraction of torch singing. It's something to do with how in everyday life we cannot actually explore or express or comprehend the full richness and complexity and horror and joy and pathos and poignancy and triumph and tragedy of human emotion. And so singing songs like that and the stories in that, that's a kind of cabaret. But also somebody being empowered and emboldened to take off their clothes in front of hundreds of people and say, my body is beautiful and it's not what we traditionally think of as beautiful and it's not what you see on television or in the ads or in the movies and it's not what people might think of as traditionally sexy, but it's beautiful and I love it and here I am and then that can inspire people in the audience to feel like their own bodies are beautiful too, even though they've been told they aren't. That's also cabaret. And then people getting up and doing amazing stream of consciousness monologues that talk about how the personal is political and their lived experience in the world and what they had for breakfast, that's cabaret as well. And then all of our colleagues from the circus and burlesque worlds, Maud Davey, who you mentioned, who I worked with on Gender Euphoria, which we're hoping will come back very soon for audiences across Australia. And I can't say more yet. Uh, she said very powerfully when we were talking about this, it used to be called uh, Variety and then it was burlesque and then burlesque was on vogue and then and then it became cabaret and then it became multidisciplinary performance art and all of these different words which are vaudeville and floating around but it's all part of the same storytelling tradition so it's a very broad church and what i think this cabaret kind of world and what i think being in the middle of that in melbourne at the moment what i've seen as the interesting changes or the interesting developments is that by working in this form, the artists of cabaret, variety, burlesque, vaudeville, whatever word we're using at the moment, and I'm sure there'll be many more words to describe it in, in my lifetime and career, the audiences and the performers have been able to meet in this fabulous middle ground of layers where the stories we are telling are about us as performers and people and who we are and our identities. And they're about the society and the life and times and the contexts we live in and comment on and interact with. And they're about the audience and their lives and how they relate to the stories and what they bring to the piece. And there's been this fabulous development over the last, I would say, 30 years in Australian cabaret contexts and worldwide, because we're such a global world now and global fringe festivals, we're all interacting with each other. 
where the audience and the artists both have stopped underestimating each other. We no longer underestimate that something will be too too high culture for our audience. It's only fit for the concert hall and the subscribers. No, people are going to come to a to a tent or a Spiegel tent or a pub or an underground room with no heating and two spotlights and someone holding a torch to make the spotlight. And people from all works of life will be able to find something in these layers and say, that's me, or say, that's fabulous, or say, I've never thought of that before. And likewise, the audience are doing that with the artists. They're no longer looking at us and going, who are these kooks? Who are these strange avant-garde demimonde freaks? They're saying, look at these people who are just owning it and living it. Wow, how amazing. And that has been the biggest development that I've seen. And that has led to, you know, people like Legato Chocolat and people like Joey Arias and people like people like myself and people like all of the people who I got involved in Gender Euphoria, people like Yummy Cabaret, people like Briefs, people like Hot Brown Honey. And for the first time, for some of us, uh, we're able to get on stage and feel like we and the audience are celebrating together rather than it being that more outmoded cabaret circus, circus carnival era of a hundred years ago, where we were the freaks and the freak show and people came to be titillated and look at the exotic other instead. Or the flip side, that it's a very underfunded, underground type thing, which doesn't have the polish or sophistication that you'd find at the Arts Centre, which now a lot of these productions are being respected and held up in major venues and thus are being given the budgets yes. to be realised in a way that they deserve to be. And that's another actual, now that you mention that, that's another change that I've seen working in this area. And I think it speaks to the way culture works, actually. And it is to do with queerness and it is to do with cultural othering and racial othering and to do with misogyny and to do with all kinds of interlocking social phenomenons, phenomena about how how we are and who we are and who is at the centre of a culture and who is pushed to the outside and then whoever's on the outside continues to make culture anyway because that's what we do. That's where storytelling animals, like I said earlier, and whatever we make at the outside is so undeniably excellent, like I said at the very first question, that it gets pulled back into the centre of the culture and... We're beginning to reach a point, I hope now, where that's recognised and there's a bit of a collapse between the boundaries of high culture, low culture, who's at the centre, who's on the outside. And it's something that is just, we just see it beginning and sometimes we see it beginning and then it fizzles out. And sometimes we see a big movement or a big moment or one particular artist or show breakthrough and we think that's it. It's going to happen now in this beautiful exchange between all aspects of culture and all of the creatives and culture maker will become one beautiful giant gumbo or soup of culture making and, and the Delicious. big institutions <laughs> and the fringe institutions and the independent artists and everyone will work together. And then sometimes it fizzles away again. And what we're seeing now over the last couple of years, I'm desperately hoping is the beginning of that process happening. And the big institutions in my experience and the audiences who would normally go and see things at the big institutions but might not be brave enough to go to the fringe and the audiences who are at the fringe but want to go see things at the big institutions, everyone's hungry for that paradigm shift to happen mm -hmm. and everyone's excited for it to happen. But we're still in the middle of the very early genesis of how does that happen? Mm. 
And, well, personally, I think the announcement we've just seen in the last week of the changes to the Melbourne Festival White Night kind of situation, that's an example of that because White Night, thousands of people who might never Mm. consider themselves cultural connoisseurs Mm -hmm. go to White Night. Mm. And it is this huge explosion of culture across all spectrums of what culture and the arts and celebration and society is and then melbourne festival some audiences there see themselves as they will only go to the best of the best and the creme de la creme and they might not realize that that's also across all spectrums and colliding those two festivals i think might be an example of the kind of change that i'm seeing and the kind of change that we're all hungry for and trying to make happen but we're just figuring out the how Mm. we know why and now we're figuring out how Mm. So we've talked about um, redrawing boundaries and activism, um, but there's actually so much celebration, like you said, um, and pride and joy in performing and in art, uh, wherever you see it, whether it be the small fringe stage or uh, here at the Melbourne Recital Centre. Can you speak a little to the joy that this brings you and the audiences? I just, the joy that it brings me to be a performer and to be a singer, and I never thought I would be. I never thought that what I did was anything special. Some On my worst days, I still don't think that. <laughs> and um, that was one of the great joys for me of discovering more about Sarah Vaughan's life. I'm singing a couple of her songs, songs that she interpreted and popularised at my performance here of Torch Songs at the Recital Centre. But over the years, as I've learnt more and more about her, until she was very high in her career and and in the last parts of her life, she still never believed that she could really sing or that she was anything special. And then we hear people like Lena Horne and people like Maria Callas and people like this felt that way about their own voices and they're recognised as some of the legendary singers. So often I think, oh, you know, everybody can sing, I'm nothing special. And then there are the real singers and they're really amazing. But when I'm actually singing... I'm not thinking about any of that. I'm not thinking, oh, I'm not a real singer. The real singers are great. And I'm not thinking, oh, look at me, how fabulous I am. Look at me singing, how amazing. It is just a total feeling that is kind of beyond cognizant thought. It's beyond words. It's beyond, and again, it sounds esoteric or metaphysical, but it is something very deep and very intense and you just unlock it and let it soar and it's a whole body experience but it's also because the body is the instrument when you're a singer but it's also a a, quite a spiritual experience and it's like nothing else it is like it is like nothing else I always overuse this word but it's transcendent and music is transcendent and the feeling of being in and connected to the music as a music maker or as a listener And in my view, the listeners are part of the music making. They're bringing something to what is the conversation or the game of music. It's transcendent. Mm. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I do have one silly question to end that very beautiful (laughs) um, discussion. Uh, And it is... What is your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> because torch songs, of course, also have that wonderful um, ability to appeal to everyone, whether they're, you know, they're usually vocally very challenging if you're going to perform at the highest levels. Which but, Max and I are. Of course. 
we're we're all cut from the same cloth in this room. But also wonderful for people just to belt out with that sheer joy and that just enthusiasm. And so we wanted to share first with our karaoke go to. If that's okay, uh, yeah, we're not going to. I'd love sing. to hear what the karaoke. <laughs> oh. are. Um, Max. So, well, mine. Max mine, is a great singer. I must say. With a capital G, yes. And uh, my go-to is MacArthur Park. Oh, of course. It's a great, yes. And great it's epic. 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 <laughs> operatic, almost. Yes. Or the Donna Summer version of the Barry Manilow classic, Could It Be Magic? Oh. Gorgeous. That's a good one. And, yes. and there's, it's connected to Chopin as well. And then if you're, if you're really in the mood... I know your secret third karaoke song, Which was a recent discovery, which was Toxic by Britney Spears. And I had not picked that for myself. And it is my my curse to bear, unfortunately. (laughs) But Um, he's very good at it. (laughs) And Megan, you have a few up your sleeve as well. I love Shania Twain's uh, Party for Two. Oh. Which is a lesser known yes, it's a, it's a B side kind of unconventional choice. It is, but that's often where the treasure lies. I think that's the good stuff, and it was released. I was telling Max as both a country single and a pop single. Uh, I like which that. is fun. That's what the postmodernists would call intertextuality. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Megan, write that down. Tell Shania. Yeah. <laughs> Shania Twain, a great genius of postmodernism. Yeah. There's a thesis. You heard for anyone it there that first. wants one. And then I can't go past Kiss from a Rose by Seal. Oh, <laughs> yes. That's like oh. a crying at the microphone. That's glorious. <laughs> so, Mama karaoke Alta. song. I mean, you sing for a know. living, so I don't know whether this is a busman's holiday, but is, is there any, any guilty I pleasure? I cannot you remember the last time I went to a karaoke. Well, you'll come would, with us. Yeah, I would love if someone <laughs> threw me a surprise karaoke party. You know, I just think it would be a lot of fun. But I th- also when you work as a singer, nobody invites you to karaoke. Oh, it's because we, no one will be shown up. The, well, listen, it's out there now. Karaoke. It's out in the public domain. If, you, if you're a fan of Mama Alto, she'll meet you at K-Box. <laughs> After when the show, yeah. after the two shows on Friday, 19th of July, <laughs> 6 right. p.m., 8 p.m., once you're finished there, on to karaoke. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with three, like, like Max did, but I Will Always Love You, Whitney oh. Houston, oh. is just one of the immortal karaoke songs and one of the immortal Torch songs. Yes, so good. I think To Love Somebody... Which there's both kind of the Bee Gees kind of versions, but also the Nina Simone versions. Mm. And because that's the song that if, and I have done it sometimes in shows, and that's the one that everyone sings along to the chorus. Ah. And you get, and you get like the gruff old grandfathers who are there with their teenage <laughs> granddaughters who, and they've come to, you know, experience something together in a country town and there's music in the local hall or pub. And, and you're singing that song and gruffly sitting there with their arms folded and their lips not really moving. <laughs> they start singing along to that one. It's irresistible. And this one I've never performed or done in karaoke, but I think it would probably be one of the ultimate karaoke songs. You're the voice. Oh. Which, you know, doesn't really match with my kind of canon or genre or musical oeuvre at all. But I think it must be one of the ultimate kind of karaoke feel good 
epic, wonderful songs. Well, you know, every great chanteuse goes through phases, so maybe that can be that can launch some future epoch of Mama Alto's uh, genius. So. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me. It was exciting. It's beautiful, beautiful to hear you talk so eloquently. I prattle on a bit, don't Not I? Not at all. <laughs> Every word a gem. And if so you good. would like to hear Mama Alto, which of course you do, in the uh, a wonderful show, Torch Songs, it's on the 19th of July, playing twice that twice. evening at 6pm and 8pm. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Tune-Up, an original podcast for the Melbourne Recital Centre, hosted by Megan Stella and Maxim Boone, produced and edited by Maxim Boone, and recorded in the studio and on location at the Melbourne Recital Centre.